by telling you about a woman named Anne Reeves Jarvis. You guys have heard of Anne Reeves Jarvis, right? Yeah, no, nobody's heard of her. I had never heard of her until this week, but she was a social activist and a community organizer who lived in the Civil War era of the 1800s, and she would later become the woman who like inspired the creation of Mother's Day. So she's actually really important. I did a little research this week because I've never asked myself, why does Mother's Day exist? And I found out, I'm about to tell you. So throughout her lifetime, this woman, Anne, made significant efforts to honor and help the mothers in her own community. That was one of her passions. And her daughter remembers hearing her mother pray one day that someday somebody would create a day that would memorialize and honor the hard work and the sacrifices of mothers. So Anne Reeves Jarvis died in 1905 on the second Sunday in May. And two years later, her daughter Anna organized a small service in honor of her mom in a little town called Grafton, West Virginia. And then the following year, they did another service and kind of called it like a Mother's Day service. And it was meant to honor her own mom. And they also brought white carnations for all the mothers in attendance and all the sons and all the daughters. By 1910, the governor of West Virginia made Mother's Day an official holiday in that state. Two years later, Anna still wants to make this like a bigger deal and to have families honor more mothers, so she starts this letter writing campaign to try to kind of drum up excitement and support to have this thing called Mother's Day. But her original intention was for it to be a very um, private but intentional celebration that each family would do for their mothers. She encouraged them to write letters to their moms. But what happens is in 1914, President Woodrow Wilson declares Mother's Day a national holiday. And from there, we know what happens, which is that the floral companies, the candy companies, the greeting card companies see it as an incredible opportunity and they capitalize on it. Um, public interest groups start using the holiday to make political statements and it suddenly gets away from Anna Jarvis. And she realizes, whoa, 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 whoa. This was not my intention was for it to become a huge event. And she was once quoted as saying, a printed card means nothing except that you are too lazy to write to the woman who has done more for you than anyone in the world. And candy, you take a box to mother and then eat most of it yourself. A pretty sentiment. So she thought it, she didn't like that there was greeting card companies profiting off of it. She thought, why don't you just write an actual letter to your mom? Um, by 1922, she's endorsing open boycotts against florists who are raising the prices of white carnations every single May. And for nearly the 20 years that followed, Anna Jarvis makes it her life's work to work against what Mother's Day has become. She is petitioning for it to be canceled. She's said to have made public displays of disruption. She was threatened with arrest. And by the age of, let's see, 80 in 1944, she was placed in a mental asylum called the Marshall Square Sanitarium. And in 1948, she died alone and penniless from all of the legal battles she had to wage trying to get Mother's Day to be canceled, the original holiday that she sought to create to honor her own mom. And she herself never had any children. Happy Mother's Day. It's a nice, neat story, huh? Why did I tell you that story? One, it's interesting, 
right? We all learned something tonight. I feel like we can feel good about that. And two, I tell you that story because I think sometimes as followers of Jesus, it's easy to just kind of go along with these culturally created traditions that surround all sorts of holidays and maybe we don't even know why. And I think with certain holidays, like Christmas or Easter, we all kind of work collectively as Jesus followers to dig a little bit deeper. And we know like it's not just about presents and Santa or eggs and bunnies and chocolate and we really like work to remember the reason for the season. But I think with Mother's Day, I don't know, I just wanna invite us to look a little bit deeper. Like what if for us, specifically as followers of Jesus, we can dig a little bit deeper into why celebrate motherhood at all? What if it's just more, more than just one day for brunch or a last minute card for your mom or making sure that you called her or you did her dishes? What do we learn about mothers in scripture? What do we do with this day if it happens to be a day that is hard for us? I like easily can think of countless examples of those of you and others who are not here in our church family who have a layer of why Mother's Day is hard for one reason or another. Some of you have lost your mothers. They're not here. Some of you have lost them very recently. Some of you have difficult relationship with your mothers and it's been that way for a while. Some of you long to be a mother and each passing year that that doesn't happen, it's just hard and it's disappointing. Some in our church body have lost children. Some have difficulty in relationships with one or more of your kids. And then for others, there's lots to celebrate today. Those of you who delight in celebrating your moms or who are happy to celebrate with your kids. And so I just wanna say all that at the beginning just to acknowledge it's kind of a mixed bag. And you might feel both. I think it's possible to feel both in a given day. You have things to celebrate and things that you might also be grieving. But I really believe that scripture and the heart of God is the best place to find a vision for motherhood that is big enough to fully encompass both the beauty and the difficulty of all of it. But before I go any further, we're gonna kind of dive into just looking at some moms in the Bible and what we can learn from them. But I wanna establish that the reason that the heart of mothers exists, the reason why any woman cares to bring life into the world or has a desire to tend to and to cultivate and to nurture another life is because God is like that. And the heart for mothering, the heart for nurturing ultimately comes from God. And so that's where I wanna start. And um, we're gonna look at just three scriptures first. Um, Genesis 1.27 will be familiar to many of you, but that never stopped us before. Um, Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So right, I mean, we're like one page into the Bible and we see that God, in all the ways he could have thought that he wanted to make sure that his nature, his character was on display, decided he needed two genders to do it, that he needed male and female, and that there would be certain things about the heart and the nature of God that men would uniquely reflect, and certain things about the heart and the nature of God 
that women would uniquely reflect. Isaiah 66, 13 gets even more specific. God is describing himself, telling us what he's like, and he says, as a mother comforts her son, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. It's really specific imagery. Think about even the difference between a dad comforting their kids. This is not like stereotypical or across the board. I realize it could be different depending on the person, but the difference in how a dad might comfort is different than how a mom comforts. There's a reason why when a kid gets hurt, they often, who do they like cry for? I want mommy. Or when they're sick, their dad can provide a lot of comfort, but there's something about their mom. And God compares himself. The comfort that he gives is like the comfort of a mother which tells us in a backwards way that the reason that mothers are comforters is because God is a comforter. And then we're gonna look at Matthew. This is a little bit more of a sad, a sad passage, but um, Matthew 23, verse 37. Jesus is going to be betrayed and then crucified shortly, and he's standing, looking over the city of Jerusalem. Michael and I have actually like been to this spot. It's just a place where you can see the whole city and Jesus is lamenting. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Again, really specific analogy. He doesn't compare himself to a rooster. He compares himself to a hen. I don't know what roosters do for their kids, but I don't know that they like put them under their wings like a hen. That imagery of bringing in all the little chicks to keep them warm, to keep them safe, to keep them close, it's a really, really specific image of all the things that Jesus could have said right there. That's what he chose. And I think that matters. Because of course we know that all throughout scripture, God is described in a lot of masculine pronouns. He's described as father, Jesus himself comes to earth as a man, like there's no argument about that, but then we have these word pictures in scripture where God compares himself to a mother and we realize that women are also made in the image of God and that tells us something. So, that we go from there. That's what we're establishing at the beginning Um, and we're just gonna look at some stories. And like literally so many stories in scripture, the story of God and his people, there is both beauty and pain. That is literally the entire story of the Bible. We cannot read the Bible and end up with some like idealized version for life. It is quite the opposite. It is like the most realistic account of what life is like. So we're gonna start at the beginning. Genesis chapter one, we meet Eve. Eve is the first mother that we get to meet in scripture And she has kind of a rough beginning of motherhood. She makes a choice that has consequences. Not just consequences for women and for mothers, but like huge ramifications for all people, for all time. That's why Jesus had to come. We know that. But Genesis chapter three, there's a really specific consequence and God says to the woman in verse 16, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. And I don't know if before that, motherhood and childbearing would have been easy, but it kind of, all we know is now it's not. 
Now it's not going to be easy. And it will still be good, and women will still have kids, but there will be difficulty in it. And then, in Genesis 4, Adam and Eve become mom and dad, and they have two kids, whose names are Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel go out to a field one day, and Cain kills Abel. This is the first family in the story of the Bible, which is sad, and then also I think, that should make us all feel a little better, right? Like, I have some rough, rough days with my kids, and I have to apologize to them a lot. They have to apologize to each other a lot, apologize to me. We do a lot of apologizing and asking for forgiveness in the Ingle King household. But so far, they may hit each other, but they have not killed each other, for which I am very, very grateful. But that's where motherhood begins in the Bible, is that story, and that's what happens to Eve's kids. I'll come back to that in a second. Next, we're still in the book of Genesis, but we're looking at a woman named Sarah, who's Abraham's wife, formerly Sarai and Abram. But her journey to motherhood was also very difficult. She was very old. She could not have kids, but she wanted kids. God promised them children, though. In Genesis 15, God and Abraham have a conversation that later turns into a covenant, what we now know as the Abrahamic covenant. And God promises to Abraham, I'm gonna give you a lot of offspring, which made no sense at the time because they didn't have any kids. But as far as we can tell in scripture, Sarah was not there for that conversation. And she was likely feeling discouraged and impatient. And so one day she says to Abraham, I have an idea. You know how we don't have any kids and I can't have kids. And Abraham's like, yeah, I know. She said, I have a maidservant, her name's Hagar. Why don't you and Hagar sleep together? And that can be how we have kids. And Abraham was like, okay, okay, yeah, sure. So Sarah gives her husband permission to go sleep with her servant. They conceive a child who is later born and named Ishmael. And after the whole thing unfolds, what began as something that Sarah thought was a good idea, and Hagar probably thought was like a finite, I don't know what they thought about it, like morally, but it happened. And they quickly began to just hate and resent that it happened at all. Sarah mistreated Hagar so badly that Hagar just ran away. And she later gives birth to Ishmael. And yet God still keeps his promise to Abraham and Sarah. He comes to them in Genesis 18 and says, in about a year, you're gonna have a baby. And Sarah laughs at God. She is like, post-menopausal at this point and knows, like, game over. Nothing is happening. And God basically says, is anything impossible with me? And then about a year later, Isaac is born. And the story continues. And God was faithful to them despite Sarah's attempt to just take the whole thing into her own hands and make kind of a mess of it. And then we come to 1 Samuel chapter 1, where we meet a woman named Hannah. Hannah also has an interesting set of circumstances. She is married to a man named Elkanah, who also has another wife named Peninnah. So he has these two wives. Hannah is infertile and she can't have kids. Peninnah can have kids. And Elkanah loves Hannah. Even though she can't give him any kids, he's kind to her, but her sister wife, Peninnah, is not kind to her. She like provokes her and makes fun of her for the fact that she can't have any kids. And so there's this really beautiful scene in 
1 Samuel where Hannah goes to pray at a place called Shiloh. And there's a priest named Eli nearby and he's watching her. And she is so sad and so desperate and so honest that the way that she's praying makes Eli think that she has got to be like not in her right mind. And he accuses her of being drunk and calls her out for it. Like, what are you doing? Why are you drunk? And she says in 1 Samuel 1.15, no, my Lord, I am a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. So first of all, can we just pause there and acknowledge that whether it is praying for things in motherhood or praying for children, literally anything that we could pray for, there's so much permission in the Bible to pray really honestly and boldly. I think it's easy to have kind of trained ourselves to like tidy it all up for the Lord before we pray about it. Like, Lord, I'm coming to you. I'm asking for this thing. I'm asking for healing or for provision or for this mending of a relationship or for a family or a marriage or whatever, you know, and then we kind of like tack on the like, but your will be done, Lord. We trust you. And I think that's good. I think coming back to the character of God is good, but we also see a really beautiful description of just an honest, not tidy, desperate prayer. I don't think she was worried about what the Lord would think about her. I think she knew that he was a safe place and that she could pray boldly and honestly, even if it seemed messy and even if other people didn't understand. So I love that about scripture, that we are given that, not just permission, but an invitation to pray like that when we feel desperate. And eventually, Hannah was given a son named Samuel. So we have, so far, Eve, the mother of everyone who made a wrong choice that would have consequences forever, and the mother whose son killed her other son. Can you imagine that being your, what you have to carry as a mom? That combo of things. And then we have Sarah, the woman who had all but given up on having kids until she thought of one last-ditch effort was to encourage her husband toward an adulterous act with her servant because she thought, this is the only way this is going to happen. And then she laughed at God when he said he would still keep his promise. And then we have Hannah, the woman who was so grieved and so tormented by her own infertility that she prayed so wildly and desperately that she looked like a drunk. But these are just some of the mothers that God included in the story. And I think we should take comfort in that because it reminds us that it is and was always about his faithfulness, not about our perfection or our control. Mothers matter in the story of God. That's really clear all the way from the beginning. Imperfect mothers matter in the story of God. And mothers with imperfect children matter in the story of God. What else do we know? Having kids is painful. Kids will be sinners. Sometimes women will want children and not be able to have them. Sometimes the stories of how one becomes a mother are wrought with complication and anguish and suffering. So we get it, it's difficult. But is there more? Is there more to hang on to than just what is or might be hard? And this is where we get to turn the corner and realize that God's heart and vision for motherhood will always be bigger and always be better than what we can see just with our own human lens.
Motherhood is hard, but it is also holy, and it is marked by beauty and by joy. So we're going to go now to Luke chapter 1. We just have three more women that we're going to look at. Um, And in Luke chapter 1 is where we get to meet two very unlikely but very grateful mothers. These are women who probably did not think that this was their time to be a mom. It probably was not on their radar for very different reasons. But women whose like actual bodies would bring into the world two men who would change it forever. So first we meet Elizabeth. Elizabeth is very old and we also know that she cannot have kids. She is barren. And yet I think she desired kids. And what happens is in Luke 1, chapter 13, verse 13, an angel appears to her husband, Zechariah, and says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. So John the Baptist's job was to come and pave the way for Jesus, to draw attention to Jesus. And for some reason, what the story of Elizabeth and John the Baptist made me wonder is what would it be like if God came to us ahead of time to tell us how our kids' lives would matter one day? Like, I think we know it. Or even if you're not a parent, just the kids in our church, we know it in theory. Like, their life is important. They were created on purpose, for a purpose. But how would it change the way we parent the way we look at children in general, if God came and said, hey, this is why this kid's life matters. This is why I have created them. This is what they're gonna do. This is why their life is gonna be significant. It would really change the way that we look at our kids. It would change the way that I look at and think about and parent my kids. So it's more just something to ponder tonight. And then shortly after we learn about Elizabeth and her miracle story, we meet Mary. Mary was also not likely thinking about motherhood at the time, but for very different reasons. She was probably a teenager. She was not married. She was betrothed, but not married. And it was to this guy, Joseph. Again, this is not new information to most of us. But a pregnancy out of wedlock would have likely carried even more stigma or shame than it does even today. It would have serious ramifications for her, for her family, for Joseph. So I imagine that her initial reaction was a little different than Elizabeth. And we even see it in Luke 1. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but um, starting in verse 26, when the angel comes and tells her, I have news for you, Mary, your life's about to change, and she has questions. How is this possible? I'm a virgin, I don't understand. That's a valid question, never happened before. So she's confused, but she continues to listen. 
And for some reason, I was thinking about how crazy it is that God could have chosen literally any other means to bring Jesus to the world. He could have like him down from heaven, you know, like at any age, at any stage, he could have sent like grown-up Jesus, teenage Jesus, but he sends like infant, infant Jesus. And does it not just through motherhood, but really unlikely motherhood. And he chooses to send him through a mother, through the means of childbirth. And that should tell us something about God's heart for mothers and the way that he views motherhood. Because that's a really strange way to do it when you think about that he had literally the universe of options. And that's who he chose and that's how he chose to do it. In Luke 1.38, we read Mary's response. After all of this, after all of her questions, she just simply says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be done to me according to your word. And I, don't, I still can't imagine everything that she was feeling, but she says yes. And then there's this beautiful account that I'm not going to read all of, but in the rest of Luke 1, Mary and Elizabeth like, get together. They're cousins, side note. So they, I can't imagine their interaction of like, you're pregnant? You're pregnant? What? They probably never in their wildest dreams imagined that they would be having babies together, an old lady and a teenager, but they're pregnant with these boys who are literally gonna like alter the rest of history. And they rejoice together. They rejoice for one another. And they grasped just what a profound gift it was to bring life into the world. And so it got me thinking about just what if we, not just mothers and not even just as women, but as a church, took our cues from Mary and from Elizabeth and just viewed all the kids here as such a gift. I know like Michael and Carol said, like it is, it can be distracting and disrupting when they're all in the back. I feel that so much, but I think, I don't know, even in the season where we're working towards having them in classes more and more to still view them as a blessing and not a burden or an interruption or a distraction, but that we would be a church who, whether or not any of them are yours, that you would love them and care for them and make them feel like church is the best place in the world because there's all these grown-ups who just think they're the best. In Matthew 19, verse 13, um, as if you didn't believe me about kids being great, Jesus said it. Um, Matthew 19, 13 says, the children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked him, rebuked, yeah, rebuked them. Jesus said, leave the children alone and don't try to keep them from coming to me because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. How wild is that, that the kingdom of heaven belongs to our kids? Not like a junior kingdom or like a a minimized watered down kingdom, but like the kingdom of heaven belongs to our kids to all of our kids, as much as it does to us. And Jesus was constantly trying to help people see that, that it was the children that he wanted people to be more like. I just think that's so thought-provoking. And finally, we're gonna wrap it up by looking at two women who are highlighted in 2 Timothy, chapter one, verses three through six. This is um, Paul writing a letter to Timothy, and he Actually, I'm just going to start at verse 5. 
Paul writes to Timothy, I recall your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am convinced is in you also. So for some reason, Paul chooses to highlight not just Timothy's faith, but how it got there. Credits his mom for her her influence. Credits his grandma for her influence. And we don't know anything about Timothy's dad or about his grandpa. And it's very possible that they were wonderful, but we'll never know because the people that Paul chooses to highlight are the mom and the grandma. A 2019 study by the Barner Research Group revealed that for many teenagers, specifically, they view their mothers as their primary spiritual influence. I'm gonna read this real quick. Practicing Christians in their teen years consistently identify mothers as the ones who provide spiritual guidance and instruction and instill the values and disciplines of their faith in the household. Moms are their foremost partners in prayer, in conversations about God, the Bible, or other faith questions. This is consistent with the Barna data through the years that show mothers to be the managers of faith formation, among other household routines and structures. Mothers are also the ones encouraging church attendance or teaching kids about the Bible, God's forgiveness, and religious traditions. So, first of all, this is not to discredit the work that dads do and the huge role that they play in the spiritual formation of their kids, but this is Mother's Day. So we're gonna highlight and validate the role of mothers and dads, you'll have your turn in like a month. Um, Man, as moms, we have a capacity to influence and nurture our children's heart in a really unique way towards Jesus. First and foremost, by the example of our own faith as they watch us love Jesus. I think about my own spiritual legacy, my mom and her mom. I think about Michael's mom and his grandma and the spiritual lineage that we have. And I also recognize that that is not everyone's story. Maybe you don't have a mom who loves Jesus or a grandma who loved Jesus. And so you're the beginning. You're the beginning of the story and your kids will be the ones to talk about you. You're the grandmother who will pass down the faith to your children and then to their children. And so if you are here and that's you and that describes your family, that maybe you feel like, I did not have a spiritual lineage like Timothy, to be encouraged that that just means that God picked you for your specific family, for your specific time, to be the one who would teach your kids about Jesus so that they could teach their kids about Jesus and so on and so on. And as we wrap up, I just want to turn a corner and say that whether or not your own mother loved Jesus, I want us just to pause and think, women and men, think about the women in your life who have spiritually mothered you. We are all here, like physically, because we have a mom who brought us into the world, but spiritually, there was likely a web of people who influenced you. Think about whether maybe it was a Sunday school teacher or a small group leader or a really like a mom of one of your best friends or a neighbor or a coach or a teacher or an older woman in your church. Think about that web of women whose faith mattered to your faith. If we were to like stand here and talk about it all night, some of those women probably had kids of their own and some probably did not. 
my own like list of women has a good mix of people who had their own kids and people who didn't, but they were a big part of my spiritual formation at different stages. And so my hope for especially each woman here is whether or not you currently have any kids that you're raising at your house, that you would see your God-given privilege to be a spiritual mother. I think about all the women here that love my kids and that my kids love, and I feel so grateful that I'm not the only one who loves my kids, that I'm not the only one that my kids are gonna watch as far as women that love Jesus. They get to see it in a lot of different people. And so even if you are not currently a mother, I just want you to feel released and empowered to love and nurture the kids in your life because it really matters. It, and we, those of us who are mothers will get to spiritually mother other people's kids. It does take an actual village. So where do we land this? Mothers matter in the story of God. Women matter in the story of God. Motherhood is hard and it is holy and it can be painful, but it can also be super joyful and its impacts will outlast us. Mothers are imperfect. Children are imperfect, but God is so faithful. So a couple just practical things. One, if you have a mother, consider how you could honor her today, whether or not she is still here to thank God for her, thank God for her life. If she is still alive, whether or not you have a great relationship with her, I think it's a way to honor our moms is just to say thank you for like being a mother. I am not gonna get like super into this, but I think in light of everything with the Supreme Court leaks and all of that this week and the question marks about Roe versus Wade and what will happen with abortion in the future, it is worth valuing the fact that all of our mothers said yes at one point. Maybe they felt like they had a different option, maybe they didn't, but we literally all exist because we had a mom who was willing to be inconvenienced in her own body for a short time and then for a long time to mother us. And that really matters. Again, whether or not you feel like you have anything else good to say about your mom, she got you here. And that's something that we can all be really thankful for. If you know a mother today, take a minute to encourage her. It is likely that she is very aware of all of the things she's not doing great at. It is likely that she is very aware of the things her kids are not doing great at. One of the best ways that you can compliment a mom is by saying something kind about her kids. So it's not me like backwards asking everyone to compliment me about my kids, by the way. I'm just saying a mom will probably like by nature not think she's doing amazing. And so a word of encouragement, a note, uh, your kids are amazing, that goes a long way, a really long way. And if you are a mother, at whatever stage, maybe you have little tiny kids like me, you have older kids, you have kids out of the house, I don't know how you feel tonight if you feel worn out, burnt out. Maybe you are working outside the home and mothering or running a business or homeschooling and maybe it just feels really intense. Maybe being a mother was always your dream, 
but it looks different and carries more disappointment with it than you anticipated. Maybe you did not get the appreciation you were hoping for today, and you realize that you crave thanks, or you crave appreciation, and that it's so deep that you realize that the little humans in your house, or the big humans, are never gonna be enough for that. And I think that's when we just get pointed right back to the heart of God and take him up on his promise in, I think it's 2 Corinthians 12, question mark? My grace is sufficient for you. <laughs> I could look it up. I didn't write it down. Anyways, where Paul writes, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. And I think that's our invitation to take him up on, that he has to be sufficient for this. Whatever stage we're at in motherhood or whether we're wanting to be a mother and we're not, that his power is actually made perfect in weakness, which is not my favorite because I would rather his power be made perfect in strength and I would rather have strength because I feel very weak as a mother so often. And that's where his power is perfected. So that's good news for me. And if you long to be a mother, but you're not yet, continue to bring that to the Lord as honestly and as desperately as you want and so right now, I just if everyone would just close their eyes and the band's gonna come back up, I know that this is usually the time where we have people raise their hands and we circle around them and pray, but I just want to pray for like a bunch of different categories tonight that might be represented in this room. And so if there's something that um, applies to you, just take it as being from the Lord for you tonight. God, thank you for our church. Thank you for all of our mothers, for the women who brought all of us into the world so that we could be here and have the lives that we have. God, thank you for the mothers in our church. I pray over all of the moms of little kids right now that are tired and rarely by themselves and doing very physical mothering daily. Meeting the basic needs of feeding and bathing and dressing and loading in and out of car seats and changing diapers constantly. I just pray that you would sustain, sustain me, sustain all our young moms. Help them to see their work as sacred and holy and even all of it that feels unseen, God, remind them that you see them. God, I pray for our moms of teenagers and of grown kids, that you would just give them tons of wisdom on how to mother in this season, in a season that involves a lot of letting go and a lot of trusting you with their kids. Would you give them wisdom? Would you give them just trust in the fact that you love their kids and that you will be faithful to them? God, I pray for those tonight who want to be a mother someday or have wanted to. God, we ask that you would bring that to fruition for them. We pray that you would bless them with kids someday. And we also thank you, God, that motherhood is not the ultimate um, 
symbol of value as a woman. I pray that we would be a church who does a good job celebrating and honoring women who are mothers and those who are not. Because they all matter in your story and they all matter here. So I pray that you would help us to celebrate those who have kids and those who don't. I pray for those who are sad about their moms today. Those who are grieving their mothers having passed away. God, would you just comfort them? Would you bless them with like a flood of sweet memories about their mom today? Would you comfort them? And for those who are just still living in the tension of a difficult relationship with their mom, who just have brokenness there, and it's not what they want it to be, or maybe it's always been that way and they feel like there's nothing they can do. God, if there is healing to be had there, would you bring healing? And if they need to be freed from having to worry about it and try to fix it, God, then would you just give them freedom from that burden? Show them what, what there is to honor and to be grateful for that, but to also just give them the permission to acknowledge where there was hurt or disappointment. Thank you, God, that you are big enough to carry and hold all of this, that you're big enough to hold the joys and the grief. Thank you that motherhood was your idea, God, something that continues and pray that we would be a church who loves our kids. That makes kids feel like the most special people in the world every time they're here. For those of us who are parents and who are not parents, would you just help us to honor kids like you do? Because the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. We pray these things in your name. Amen.